Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. According to John, from verse 27, this is the word of the Lord. Well, brothers, sisters, and friends, as we always do, I, by the grace of God, I, I, I intend to just continue, as we always do in the Gospel according to John in the 12th, 12th chapter, to continue where we left off last week. The context hasn't changed. Jesus is still there in the final days before he's handed over to be crucified. He's there in Jerusalem, very likely in the temple ground, and Having spoken to a crowd, he has a massive crowd before him, a crowd that is very quite eager still at this point to make him king. And Jesus has endeavored to show these people who he is, what type of king he is, and what sort of kingdom he has come to establish. Now, as we've worked our way through the gospel, the 12th gospel, we also have come to the point where now Jesus is at the pertinent point of his, his discourse with these people whereby now he's making them aware of the necessity of his impending death, that is absolutely crucial, that is absolutely necessary, that this King Jesus, this one who has come before them, this one who you are declaring to be King, this one who you've chanted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, this one you declare as King will have to lay down his life, And this is a point that people will not take lightly, as you saw in the text that we read today, but we won't won't get there. But before Jesus does, more pertinent to the text that we're going to be exploring and examining this afternoon, is what Jesus is telling the people and making them aware and establishing in their minds that they would understand what it is he's going to accomplish in his death. What is Jesus going to accomplish in his death? So what he does, before his listeners, he opens his mouth and he outlines or frames his words in three statements of fact from verses 31 through 33 about what he's going to accomplish in his death. And beloved, this death of our Lord is is not like some in the crowd may assume when the time comes for him to be crucified, where another good man bites the dust. Not at all. The death of our Lord is enormously efficacious. It is effectual. In fact, he will accomplish far more in his death than anyone before him could ever dream or imagine. We began the text from verses 31 through 33 last week. And that's where the Lord, as I said earlier, examined, or actually brings out the three statements of facts of what he's going to accomplish in a few days' time. One, two, three at the very latest, when he lays down his life on behalf of his people, willingly, this is what he is to accomplish. This is the outcomes. This is what's going to occur. And let me rejog your memory by reading verses 31 through 33 so we can get these truths in the back of our minds. Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I... When I, I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going 
to die. Truth number one, statement of fact number one from the mouth of our Lord is that judgment has come upon the world. In his death, as he approaches the cross, or when he is on the cross, judgment will come upon the world. And that's what Jesus is saying. Truth statement number two, and I outlined these last week, but I'm just wanting to rejog your memory, is now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Truth statement number three. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Last week, we unpacked the first of those three statements. And I said, I'm going to approach these statements one by one. And that will be the crux of my three sermons to get through them. Last week, we approached the first. We unpacked and meditated upon our Lord's words. Now is the judgment of the world. Judgment. This is, this is courtroom language. A decision's been made. Judgments are being handed out. Jesus is saying a verdict is going to take place upon the world. Judgment. The judgment of God will be put on display for all to see because the world is being judged upon the righteous scales of a thrice holy God. The world is being judged. Beloved, as we saw last week, the world thought that they were judging Christ. But in fact, Christ, the second member of the Trinity, God himself was judging the world. And what was the verdict? Guilty. Guilty. All men are rendered guilty before a good and holy God. But God has made provision, we saw that last week, through and by His Son, His only begotten Son. Provision that if the world, if those who are judged as guilty before a good and holy God whose standard is absolute perfection, if they would come to trust in the provision of God, His only Son, and place their trust in Him, repent and believe upon Christ, then they will be forgiven of their sins. If all mankind are guilty, then the simple facts of the matter is this, beloved. Sin must be recompensed, and a good God must recompense every single sin. And there's only two categories. Either one stands before the Lord on his own and bears the brunt of the wrath of God, the recompense of God upon sin, or one stands in the substitute, the sinless substitute, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and says, He bore all my sin upon that cross. They're the only two categories. Only two categories are given in this life. Now with that courtroom setting in our minds, our Lord turns his attention to the second of two statements, the one I want to examine this afternoon. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. Only ten words in the English, eight in the original, but these words are so loaded, so rich in meaning. In fact... The sermon I'm preaching to you now is so heavily redacted because I had so much I wanted to tell you I couldn't fit in one sermon. So if it's a bit patchy or blocky, I, my apologies. There's so much I wanted to say, but I wanted to creep it into to the one sermon. But beloved, if we, if we come to recognize what Jesus is saying now, will the ruler of this world be cast out? These are such glorious words for your heart and, and mine. These words are words that receive that will give us immense comfort. For every believer who's come to find refuge in our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I believe in order to understand this grand statement and what it means to us, 
we must ask ourselves a couple of questions, some clarifying questions, if you may. Two questions. Firstly, who is this ruler of this world? Who is the ruler of the world that Jesus speaks of? That's a good place to start. Now we need to know who Jesus speaks of in order for us to know who it is that will be cast out. Once we've established the who, we need to ask the second question, how? How will this ruler of this world be cast out? Who is the ruler of this world is the first and the second is how will he be cast out? I think you've already decided in your minds which one of the two questions are far more difficult to answer. I think you may be correct and that's why we we need the grace of God this evening and may he be gracious to us this afternoon. Who is the ruler of this world? Literally, world, cosmos. Some of your translations might even say the prince of this world. That's a good translation. Both come from the original word archon. Archon literally means to be first or preeminent in rule, preeminent in rank or preeminent in authority. Whatever we have or wherever we have in the English, you will know any word that comes from archon. We have the arch or arch prefix in front, of, in front of the word. And when that arch prefix is in front of the word, it means the first or the preeminent or the highest rank in that category. So, for example, arch enemy, you might have a lot of enemies on your list, but the one that comes right at the top is your arch enemy. Or if I go and say the archbishop, it's many bishops, but who is the highest in rank? Who's the leader of bishops? And archangels, there's another one, and you get the picture, there's many more examples. But here in John chapter 12, Archon, which is translated ruler, we're talking about the preeminent ruler and ranking authority in the cosmos. In the world. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but that sounds like a quite a position of authority. So, who is this ruler? Who's this ruler who has such an exalted position? It seems hey, the ruler of this world, the prince of this world, the one who is the highest rank in this world, is what we've been told. Who is it that is in rule and and such authority? Is it Satan? Is it the devil? Is it the ancient serpent? Is it the great red dragon, according to the book of Revelation? It's not a quick question, or a trick question, I should say. Yes, it is. I saw some nods, and you are correct. But I asked the question because it can get a little confusing. And that's why context is very important. Not only context, but we, we look at the context, and we look how the term or the phrase is used elsewhere in Scripture to derive what the Lord or who the Lord is speaking of. Because brothers and sisters, is as you are walking through the doors, if I came up to you individually, without this text in your mind, and I asked you, brother, sister, who is the preeminent ruler of the cosmos? I, I don't know, but I suspect you would have answered God. God is the preeminent ruler of the cosmos. I mean, that would have been my answer without the context. But the ruler here is Satan. Real power, real authority. At the cross, we're told, judgment has come on all the created order. That was the previous statement, the one we looked at last week. All the inhabitants in this world, everything, all the rulers, all the authorities, the chief of authorities, the preeminent of rulers, uh, who is in the created order, and that is Satan himself. He stands judged before God. And it's at the cross, Jesus says, 
that he will be cast out. Beloved, we know Satan is the ruler. And I hope as I progress and unpack this passage for you in this sermon, it will become clearer and clearer. But we can start to clarify or to prove the point by looking at where else in Scripture that phrase is used, ruler of this world or ruler of the world. There's only three times in Scripture There's only three times that phrase is used from the mouth of our Lord in the whole of the New Testament. In fact, every one of those three times it's used here in the gospel according to John. Every single time, ruler of this world or the world is used here in the gospel, the fourth gospel, the gospel according to John. And every time, without exception, the Lord is speaking about Satan, about the devil. John 16, 11, we're told the ruler of this world is judged, Jesus speaking to the disciples in the upper room. Perhaps even clearer is the second occasion, or actually the third, uh, the, the, sorry, my apologies, the second occasion, or the third that I'm mentioning. Uh, John 14, verse 30, in the upper room, once again, the Lord says to his disciples, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Context, Satan has just entered Judas. Judas has stormed out from among the eleven and Jesus, and he's gone over over the mount of, actually he's there now, he's gone to the, the chief priests, and he's gone to bring back their chief priests and the band of robbers to come and arrest the Lord. He's, he's coming, and Jesus is saying, I can't talk to you much longer, because the time has come for the ruler of this world is coming. There's absolutely no doubt that the ruler of the world also here in John chapter 12 is Satan himself. The scripture also calls other titles that seem to be titles of exaltation. And they attribute those to Satan as well. You would know God of this age is another one. The prince of the power of the air is, a, is another one. The God of this world or God of this age depending on, on your translation. Of course there are other names given to Satan that are quite obvious. Belzebub or Belzebub, the devil, the tempter, the accuser and the list goes on. But back to the text here in John chapter 12, we know that the ruler of this world is Satan. So we need to move on to the next question because I have a lot lot to say in the next question. How is Satan cast out? How is he thrown out? A possible translation for cast out is banished. How is Satan banished? Is Jesus saying after the resurrection, because he is speaking about the cross, is he saying in the cross and the resurrection and ascension that the devil will be out of action? Is that what Jesus is saying? Is Satan going to be out of action if if he's an impotent foe, stripped of all his power after the cross and stripped of all his authority, then what is there to worry about? Has that been your experience? Beloved, already... I hope you can see how this sort of thinking can pose a real problem. Let me give you a few reasons why this would be a real problem. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now. Spirit that is now. Ephesians is a post-resurrection epistle. 
The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Let me give you a few chapters later in the same book. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Over this present darkness. Not past. Present. Some translation, this dark world. This is happening now. Against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Well, let me take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse Four, where we read, and even if our gospel is vowed, the apostle Paul saying, it is vowed to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, the God of this world, listen to that title, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Let me give you one more to ponder. John chapter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Does that sound definitive to you? It does to me. It doesn't sound like an impotent foe at all. Whatever Jesus is saying about casting out of the ruler of this world is not a complete and total annihilation of him. Because every one of these examples or texts that I've read to you are written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the apostles of Jesus Christ. And every single one is post-resurrection. The resurrection has already occurred. What Jesus said will take place has already taken place. And they write this under inspiration of the Spirit of God. It seems clear to me that Satan is still the ruler in their writing. That he's still a prince. That he's still the God of this world. It seems clear to me that Satan, the ancient serpent, still, still has power. He still has authority. He's not out of action by any means of the word. And even as Christians, we are told, we are warned, we are exhorted to take heed against him. Not sit back and relax as though the cross of Jesus Christ has made Satan more temperate or mellowed him down as a mellowed down enemy. No, it's the opposite. The cross has infuriated Satan. It's infuriated the ancient serpent, the devil. It's made him angry in his declared war against Christ and his saints. This is war. What we see before us is is war. The text in Ephesians chapter 6 that I quoted earlier, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. You know the text. Reading on, reading on. We're told if you're going to engage in this warfare, and you will if you're a Christian... If you're going to engage in this warfare, we're exhorted to put on, not some, the full, the absolute full armor of God, because the enemy is on the offensive. You can't side skirt and hope that no one, he won't approach you. He's on the offensive. He's fierce, and he's looking for a fight, and he's a dirty fighter. He's especially angry at you, Christian. He's especially angry at me. The apostle Peter likens him to a lion. 1 Peter 5.8. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Why is he roaring? Because he's angry. He's angry. He's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So how do we understand the words of our Lord? Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? And it sounds like that's it. He's going to be no more. Now, before I go there, I feel like I need to make a point. I need to make something clear. Beloved, Scripture is crystal clear. God, in his good purposes, has decreed that Satan does 
possess authority, power and rule in his world. And this afternoon we won't even begin to scratch the surface of all the scripture that speaks to that topic. We're not going to go there. But beloved, I want you to know this and be sure of this. That his power, that is Satan's power, Satan's reign, Satan's authority, although real, it's under the absolute sovereignty of God. What we see in this present age is not a cosmic battle between good and evil with us being on one side hoping that evil would prevail. The Bible doesn't have those categories. The Bible has the category of creator. And the category of creator is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the other category is the creature. And all the creatures is everything else. And the creature comes under the supreme authority of the creator. God is sovereign and in complete, complete control of everything, beloved. He's supreme. God is supreme. Although the creature may vary in rank, by definition, He's subject to the supremacy of God. We need to keep that in our mind when we speak about the power and the rule and the authority of Satan. Because his power is given to him by God. It is God who sets up, throne, sets up thrones and it's God who deposes thrones. It is his prerogative and no one will force his hand. God is in complete control. And Satan and his minions, they all know it. Have you ever realized what Satan says to Jesus in Luke chapter 4 when he's tempting our Lord in the wilderness? In verse 5, we're told, And the devil took him, that's Christ, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you, this is Satan speaking to Jesus, To you, I will give all this authority and glory. For it has been delivered, handed over, given to me. And I give it to whom I will, is what Satan's saying. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Question, who gave him the authority? Who sets up thrones and deposes thrones? Daniel chapter 2 verse 21. The only true God, Yahweh. He knows. He knows. Satan knows it is God that has given it to him. Remember back in, in Matthew chapter 8 verse 28 when two demon-possessed men on the other side of the Sea of Galilee come and approach the Lord out of the, out of the tombs. You remember what they say to Jesus? Who or what have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us? Before the time? They know we may have authority now, but our time is short. Revelation 12, 12. He knows. And in Matthew, going back to that passage, those demons begged Jesus. Let me tell you something. The superior never begs the inferior. They begged Jesus. Begged him, please, please, cast us out Satan, ruler of this world? Yes, but under the supreme authority and rule of the sovereign of the universe, God himself. And he goes only as far as the leash that God has given him to go and no further. That's far and no further. Remember Job? 
So how do we understand now will the ruler of this world be cast out? Let's, let's begin by saying at least we can look at that text and we know something big is taking place. That's, can we agree on that? Something big is taking place here. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Satan's reign forever will change at the cross. What it is, hopefully we can explore as the sermon goes on. But something, something is happening. And, but my question is, is, is how and what is going to take place? That's my question. And, and I think I believe to understand uh, what cast out, when Jesus says the rule of this world is being cast out, uh, to understand what cast out entails, I think we first need to acknowledge four crucial facts. Four crucial facts. Facts that you most likely know, and I hope you do, so this may be a revision, but please bear with me. I need to lay down this foundation for what I'm about to say. Fact number, fact number one. There was a time in history where everything in this creation was very good. Fact. Everything. Because when God created everything, visible and invisible, in everything in creation, the heavens and the earth, and populated everything. In six literal days, he looked upon his creation, what his hands had made, and God said, it is very, very good. It's fitting for the presence of the thrice holy God. His created order was very, very good. It had, it had no sin, it had no corruption, no rebellion, no immorality. There was no treason before the eyes of God. It was all good. Fact number one. Let's go to the second. The second fact is Satan at one point rebelled against God because when God created Satan, he didn't create him a rebel. Re Satan rebelled against God. Remember, everything God has created, he created good. This evening, I'm not going to go into how and when that all took place for the sake of time, but you need to just acknowledge that Satan, there was a point where he was also very good, a part of God's very good creation, and there was a point where he came out of that and he became very bad. Okay. Let's go to fact number three. There was a time, a dist distinct time in history when man... Now our attention is on man. The crowning glory of God's creation. When man was meant to be Yahweh's vice regent. God, God Yahweh is the, the great ruler, the sovereign of the whole universe. Man was meant to be the vice regent over the earth. To be a one who brings domi dominion and, and represents God himself upon, upon the created order. We, there was a time in history where man fell into sin. He committed treason against God. God gave him a command and man dishonored God and disobeyed God. And as the federal head, that is Adam, all creation was now plunged into darkness and subjugated to corruption. That happened in a particular time in history. I know there's some theologians out there that say it's a myth. It's not a myth. It's written in scripture. It's literal and it happened in our history. At this time, sin and all the baggage of sin came into the world. Man's faculties became completely depraved. He became subjugated, beloved, and bound and enslaved to sin, which means enslaved to the devil. The kingdom of darkness is the rule and the domain of the rule of this world, the, the devil, the ancient serpent. And now mankind is enslaved to the devil and his kingdom. A kingdom that is in enmity with God, a kingdom that hates God in all its action, a kingdom that is defined by sin. All of a sudden, man who knew no sin 
has now become overcome by the presence and the power and the penalty of sin. All of which are in full force in the kingdom and domain of Satan. Fourth thing I want to bring to the table is this. When Jesus says, now the ruler of the world is cast out, we must acknowledge in some way the power and the rule and the authority of Satan before the cross is radically changed after the cross. Because up until now, you might think, what's changed? (laughs) If he's still powerful, he still has authority, if he still has rule, then what's the change before and after? Well, let me tell you, there is a radical change that's taken place. Before and after, and I think the best way to define what that means would be to consider how our Lord's finished work has impacted the domain of Satan's rule. In other words, how the first advent of the Son of God has impacted the work of the hands of the devil who, whose rule and reign is, as I said earlier, defined by sin. What changes occurred? What happened? What impact was there to the presence and the power and the penalty of sin that were at one time in full force under the enemy's reign? How have they been impacted? When he was cast out. Now we've already acknowledged that the ruler of this world is alive and well. We all agree on that, right? Okay. He's still active. He's reigning over the kingdom of darkness. We know that the scripture tells us that's a, that's a current present reality. And the world is known as the, when the world is spoken of, it's the system of, it's evil system of the world. The presence of Satan, the presence of Satan and his minions... And sin is still alive and it's strong. The work of the cross has not eradicated sin. It hasn't eradicated Satan yet. Sin is still ubiquitous. It's it's absolutely everywhere. Nor has the work of the cross put an end to the presence of Satan, as I said earlier. No, he still roars or roams around like a roaring lion seeking one to devour. So the impact of the cross hasn't completely removed the presence of sin, nor has it removed the presence of Satan. How about his power? How about the power over sin over which Satan has influence? Has the cross affected the power and the authority of Satan? Yes. Here at this department, biblically, we see a shift taking place. A shift that took place from the before the event of the cross and a shift that's taken place after the event of the cross. The, the Apostle John tells us that this was in fact the purpose for Christ's advent. He was targeting the work of Satan in his first advent as the God-man. Listen to what First John chapter 3, verse 8 tells us. Listen to these words, very short and very precise. John tells us the reason the Son of God appeared, when you get verses like that, it's just so wonderful. It's just so straightforward and makes it clear as day. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. So no doubt Satan has power and authority, but the advent of the Son of God in flesh has ushered in a greater and more powerful king in Jesus The king has come, we're told, to clean things up. According to the Apostle John, Jesus has come with a demolition ball to destroy the works of the devil. 
That's his purpose. And to set the captives free. You see, Jesus is the stronger man in Matthew chapter 12. He's the one who binds Satan and and plunders his goods. He's the one who sets free the captives who've been enslaved and dominated under his dark rule, under sin, under the oppression. He's the one who, who sets free those who've been dominated and enslaved to the enemy. His lies, who've been bamboozled by his deception, enslaved to his to sin. Jesus is the one who, who frees. Jesus breaks their chains and sets them free. The ruler of this world is powerless to stop him. You hear that? The ruler of this world is powerless to stop Christ in accomplishing his work. For too long, Satan has been operating in tyranny uncontested. Well, now he hasn't met his match. He's met the one who will crush his head. As the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3.15 says. Because the true king has come. And he's entered into Satan's realm. And he's broken Satan's grip. He's challenged Satan on every point. Defeating him on every point. And he's come out victoriously triumphant. Beloved, in the wilderness... Satan threw everything he had at our Lord. He came out with big guns blazing, but to no avail. Our Lord stood his ground and he did not sin. He remained perfect. He remained righteous. He remained flawless in his obedience to the Father. The power and the dominion of Satan had zero bearing upon our Lord. It's the opposite, actually. Christ crippled the power of Satan. In his ministry. How often did Jesus cast out demons? Proving that the power that is in him is far power, more powerful, far greater than the power of demons themselves. He freed the oppressed and cast out demons. How often did Jesus, our Lord, heal diseases? Diseases and sickness is part and parcel of the rule of the enemy that is in a sin-saturated well. There was no sin, there was no disease and sickness before the fall. And there will not be, in the, there is in the kingdom of darkness, but there will not be in the final consummation of the kingdom of the, of the Son. Praise be to God. When his minions, that is Satan's minions, by way of Herod, tried to eliminate Christ as an infant, Satan was unsuccessful. He was defeated by way of the religious leaders of the day, to attempted to stone our Lord, to push him off a cliff, to arrest our Lord. But our Lord remained untouched until he was willing because his hour had come. And when our Lord confronted death with death, the very epitome of the power that Satan yields, our Lord crushed death, demonstrating he is more powerful then his foe by raising Lazarus from the dead. And then, of course, when he himself rose from the dead victorious. You see, the most powerful weapon in Satan's arsenal is death. And our Lord brought a decisive defeat over death in his resurrection. Beloved, our Lord defeated the ruler of this world on every point. He crushed his head. Satan is now not totally removed, but he's bleeding out. And now because of the finished work of our Lord, Satan is bound to never 
ever obstruct the work of Christ. Christ will walk straight into his realm, straight into his domain, and he will free whomever he wishes to free. He will go and gather his sheep from any domain, from domain of darkness, and Satan is completely powerless to stop our Lord. Never to be enslaved again. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Satan's grip is broken. In Christ, to be finally set free through his word is to be free indeed. Beloved, we get so many beautiful passages that speak to this wonderful point for the believer to grip onto and to apprehend. We're told that those who are set free in Christ, they overcome the evil one, 1 John 2, 14. That those who have been set free in Christ by his, by his grace and through faith, we're told they overcome the domain of darkness. And the domain of darkness is the world in 1 John 5, 4. And although Satan is a formidable foe, those who are set free from the grip of Satan are never to come back under his dominating power ever again because Christ has crushed the power of sin. He who is in them, us believers, is greater than he who is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. Beloved, no longer when the enemy barks out of command do those oppressed and in chains by him need to say, Sir, yes, sir, because we can do otherwise because of what Christ has done. Because now, because the efficacies of Christ that have been accomplished through his life, his death, his resurrection and his ascension and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit upon everyone who belongs to him, we are told, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a promise in James 4, 7. The power of the enemy is crippled pertaining to the things of Christ and the things of the people of Christ. I love the way the Apostle Paul summarized this actual point. The work of Christ over the enemy in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. Just listen, listen to these verses, how glorious they are. We read, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set, us, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. And he put them to open shame. By triumphing over them. In him. Our Lord triumphant over Satan. Over his minions through the atoning work on the cross nailing our sins Christian nailing your sins to the cross nailing their legal demands to the cross we, we've dealt with the presence and the power now let's talk about the penalty. The penalty of those under the rule of Satan. The wages of sin is... And beloved, I mentioned it before. But did you know that Satan, the devil, is the one who has the power of death to yield? That sounds like a pretty controversial statement. Of course, I wouldn't say it unless it's written. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, or verse 14. Listen to what he says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking about Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is, clarity, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death's grip is broken through the work of Christ upon the cross. The fear and the threat of death is being completely removed through Christ upon the cross. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, lawbreakers deserve death. Every one of us. And the sting of death is because of sin. But our Lord nailed, our Lord nailed our sin and its legal demands upon the cross, beloved. That if you come to Him in repentance and faith, He's nailed your sin and its legal demands upon the cross. Because as our substitute, He bore the penalty in His body. The penalty that we deserve, that's death. And in doing so, the resurrected Savior, He has disarmed Satan of His power over you, Christian. I said earlier, I said earlier that He's still powerful, that He still has authority. That he still rules and he still reigns to some degree. But beloved, what I'm saying now, according to the text that is before us, insofar as it pertains to the believer in Christ, those who have apprehended Christ by faith, who have been inserted by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan is impotent over your soul. And that's good news. That's great news. You know what else this means? When Jesus nailing our sin upon our cross, upon the cross. Satan has no accusation over us anymore. You see, on the cross, Jesus disarmed Satan's favorite tool. Accusing the saints. He loves to accuse the people of God. I think... I think this is the heart of the matter of what is being spoken of here when Jesus says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. It's courtroom language. Jesus already spoke about judgment that will come upon the world. And we know, according to John 16, that now the ruler of this world is judged. And here, it it seems to me that Jesus is carrying on the courtroom language. Because you see, when a judge gives a verdict, and the one who stands before him is guilty, the gavel comes down. It crashes. And the judge then demands the man be removed from his presence. Get out! Remove this this sinful man, this guilty man, from my presence. 
Remove him from my sight. Get out. Cast him out. Not only because he's been judged, but because of what he has done for centuries before the cross. And he's done it with merit. And he's done it before the Lord. You know what he's done? I'm going to let Revelation chapter 12, I'm going to let God himself say it, because he can say it better than I can. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we read, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Same root word as cast out in John chapter 12. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before the Lord. He doesn't rest. The devil, Diablos, literally means backbiter, slanderer, accuser. That's who he is. He's the one who for centuries before the cross, day and night brought accusations against the people of God before the Lord. And listen to this, beloved. Listen to this. His accusations had merit. Satan is no fool. He's brilliant. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. But he who is in the world is greater than all of us if he who is in us is not in us. He sees. He knows. He sees the sins of the saints. And he knows the legal demands of those sins. The soul that sins shall die. And he yields the power of death and desires nothing more than to use it. And in his hand is a long scroll for every one of the saints of God. The long list of transgressions and sins and iniquities and trespasses that they've committed. And day and night he brings those accusations before Yahweh. These sins, Yahweh, these sins have legal demands. I know what they require and so do you. The blood of goats and bulls will not atone for these sins. I know that. You're a just God. What are you going to do about it? Recompense. 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 Look at the filth of your people. Can you see what they've committed? All the while attempting to deceive the Old Testament saints because they too know that the blood of animals cannot take away my sins before a holy God. They knew it. They were trusting God to provide the atonement. But they knew how can an animal take away the sins of my, my sins made in the image of God and I've, and I've transgressed the law of God. How can that animal die? How can that animal bear and be my substitute? No, no, no. No. They knew the matter is not settled. These offerings and these sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper. The accuser has a point, beloved. There is merit in his accusations. And the saints, they know it. And until the cross, the matter was yet unresolved.
it's right here that the words of our Lord in John chapter 14, verse 30, blow my mind because I believe they have immense relevance to what we're talking about. To his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, a few hours before Judas Iscariot comes and betrays the Lord and they lead him down the, the path of Golgotha and suffering and pain and hang him upon the cross. A few hours before that, this is what the Lord says, I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. You remember I quoted that text. I quoted that text before. The ruler of this world is coming in and through Satan because we're told Satan had possessed Judas. And he's coming by way of Judas because this is the dark hour and the Lord has allowed for it. But what I didn't read for you is the rest of that passage or the rest of the verse. The ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me. So that the world may know I love the Father. In perfect obedience to the commands of the Father. Our righteous Savior. Our flawless Lord. Perfect in goodness and righteousness. The devil, the accuser, has no claim on Christ. He has no claim on me. No accusation to make. No law has been broken. No sin has been committed. I do as the Father has commanded me, he says. His scroll is empty. I've sinned. I've broken the law of God. My scroll is full of transgressions. But in Christ I have a perfect substitute. He hung upon that cross to bear upon himself my sin and the legal demand for my sin. So that by faith in him and by his blood, he's cleansed me from my sin and he's wrapped me in his own righteousness. His death is my death and his life is my life. I stand forgiven. My conscience is cleansed in Christ. Stand innocent. Now I can in Christ Jesus declare, Satan has no claim on me. Because Jesus declared it himself. And in union with my Lord and my Savior, his merits are my merits. And when Satan stands before the Father, he shows, he pulls his scroll. And there's nothing on that scroll. Not because I haven't sinned, I continue to sin. But because the perfect life of Jesus Christ and his righteousness is given to me on my account. Not that I'm worthy. I am not. But by grace and by his grace alone. Let me, let me end with this picture, beloved. In Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet. That means he's 
One of the prophets has come back after the exile into Babylon. He came back with the, the remnant of Jews who'd come back in the southern kingdom to build the temple and to reside there in Jerusalem or in Judah. The text that is before us foreshadows the cross. It foreshadows the cross. I know this for sure because verse 9 of the chapter, we're not going to get that far and that's why I'm mentioning it. Verse 9 of the chapter, the Lord himself says that the events of this vision given to Zechariah will come to fruition because he goes on to say, I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. That's the cross. The cross is in view now. So what I'm going to read is four verses and the cross is in view. Keep that in your hearts. Keep that in your minds. The cross is in view and it's going to be clear, I hope. From verse 1, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. High priest. The most holy and the most righteous in the land. Of all the people of God, he, he's the one who needed to be undefiled. He's the one who needed to be ritually pure. He's the one who needed to be clean. He's the one who's entrusted in entering into the presence of God on behalf of the people. Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. That's Christ. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. What are you doing there? He's there to accuse. Satan brings his accusations against the high priest of God. That's what he does. He accuses and accuses and accuses. He brings that scroll of iniquities and he places it before him. And he says, I'm going to accuse you of all these sins. And he accuses without ceasing these legal demands of every one of those sins needs to be met. And you read to the end of the chapter, beloved. And Joshua doesn't say a single word. He has no defense. He stands guilty as charged. Satan is coming before him and he accuses him. He hears not a word out of his mouth. I'm guilty as charged. Not a worth, not a word from his mouth, but there is a word from the Lord's mouth. He's the one who intercedes for his people. The angel of the Lord, that's Christ, doesn't remain silent. He opens his mouth and he says, And the Lord said to Satan, Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now listen to verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Guilty. Guilty. The 
enemy has accused. And there's merits to his accusations. Because every one of my transgressions deserves death. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. And then the Lord opens his mouth once again. And he says to those standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, that's to Joshua, he says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Beloved, is there anything more glorious than this? Guilty. Not a word. I can't defend myself, but I have one who has or who will. A, a, a interceder on my behalf, my Lord and my Savior, the one who has shown nothing but grace upon an undeserving sinner. Head down in shame, but he says, lift up your head. You're in me. You're mine. And I will make you pure. I will make you holy. I will bring you to that point where you are without spot or without blemish. To be with me for all eternity. Not because of who you are, but because of who I am. And if you are in me, no one has an accusation against you. No one. It will not stand in the courts of heaven. Because your account is my account. And my account is absolutely, absolutely spotless. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Who is it that will condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us in Christ. In Christ, Satan has no claim on me.